following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. When I was uh, 26, I moved to Greenville, Illinois to take a job as a cross-country and track coach. And as I moved there, I needed a place to live. And up until then, since college till then, I'd lived in Nashville. I'd rented apartments, uh, lived with roommates. But now I was moving you know, to Greenville, and I was going to buy a house. So I bought my first house. It was about 850 square feet. It's basically a living room, kitchen, bedroom, a den. I like I needed a den. And I remember I bought it, and I don't remember the exact price I bought it for, but it was like $48,000 or something like that. Now, if you remember the first time you bought a house, for those of you who have bought a house, for those of you who haven't bought a house yet, right? don't worry, this is coming. But you buy the house. You agree to the, the terms of the sale. Okay, yeah, 48000 that's great. And you go through the whole closing process. And then you sit down at closing, and they slide this piece of paper in front of you that tells you how much you're going to pay for your house. You remember the shock of that the first time you bought a house? Again, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it felt like they said, okay, $48,000 is what you bought this for. Here's your monthly payments over the 30 years of your, of your mortgage. So at the end, you will have paid $7,843 or something like that. Like, it could have been that because I was just going, whoa, oh, wait, how much am I paying for this? I thought I paid $48,000. But you realize when you buy a house, you're going to pay much more than what you agreed just to buy the house, just for that loan that you secure. And what's more, the costs don't stop there, right? Because that's just the start. Because if you own a home, you know that there is constant maintenance that must be done to that house. You have to replace furnaces and air conditioners. And if you have kids, you have to replace furniture. But there are, <laughs> there are just tons of maintenance costs that go along with owning a home. There's always maintenance work to do. We have to keep up with those properties. And this is true not just of home ownership either, is it? In pretty much every area of our life, there is maintenance that must be done. Yes, we have regular upkeep on our houses, but we have the same thing with vehicles. We have the same thing with yards. We have the same thing just in relationships with one another. None of us take something that's really important, really valuable in our lives and just leave it alone and hope for the best, do we? As Paul has been teaching, he's been speaking to Timothy about the the fire of faith. He applies that same truth to the passage today. He shows Timothy, he shows us that living with a hot, bright, and intense faith is not something that will sustain itself. It requires maintenance. It requires work on our part. And so the question I want us to ask ourselves as we get into this passage is, how do you and I live with an awareness, with a a focus, and with a purpose that can maintain the fire of our faith? After addressing the, the false teachers, as Paul did last week, he's going to turn his attention back to Timothy and address the struggles of the Christian life, struggles that you and I know very well. He's going to talk to us about the truth of maintaining our faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And first, he's going to start in verse 10 through 12 by showing us the cost 
of a faithful fire. The cost of a faithful fire. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 says, But you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and suffering that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul's going to talk to us about the cost of faith of a faithful fire. He begins, he says, but you. And again, last week he talked about the false teachers, those who left the faith in pursuit of their own gain. He says, Timothy, that is not to be you, but you, you know better, Timothy. You know better, follower of Christ. You don't fall to the characteristics, the tactics, and the evidence of deception that is laid before you by false teachers. Instead, Paul says, you, Timothy, imitate me. Continue to follow what I have taught you. Continue to live, bathe, bask in the truth of who God is in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Continue to do this. It will not be easy, but continue to do this. And what will you get, Timothy, if you continue to do this? What's your great reward? Persecution. Hallelujah. Praise God, right? Paul makes no, leaves no room for Timothy to think anything else. In verse 11 and 12, he talks about his persecution. He uses the word persecution three times in just those two verses. He says, this is the cost of faithfulness, Timothy. And not just you, Timothy. He says, this is the cost of all who want to live a godly life. That's you and me. Paul says, all who follow Christ will meet persecution, struggle, strife, suffering in this world. But Paul doesn't just leave it at that. He doesn't just say, hey, you're going to suffer. Good luck. No, he reminds Timothy that God provided everything that Paul needed in his time of persecution. And God would provide everything Timothy needs in his time of persecution. And Christian brother and sister in Christ, God will provide everything you and I need in the time of persecution. If we remain faithful, if we continue to maintain the fire of faith. I've heard it said this way. There are two kinds of Christians. Those who are suffering and those who are about to suffer. Not exactly the most marketable slogan for Christianity. But it's true. And here's the thing. It's not just true of those of us who are Christians. That is true of every person on the face of the planet. There are only two kinds of people on the face of the earth. Those who are going through suffering and those who will suffer. Anybody want to argue against that? Anybody want to look at your life and the lives of those around you and go, no, I don't think that's true at all. No, we know that's true. Here's the difference between the non-believer and the believer. For those of us whose faith is in Jesus Christ, at least we recognize and understand that suffering is coming and we suffer with purpose. There are no shortage of passages in scripture that allude to the suffering and persecution that will necessarily be a part of the faithful Christian life. We could sit and we could spend the rest of our time here together this morning just going through those verses. We're not gonna do that, but we could. 
But the question becomes, okay, if that is the case, if that is true, how, how do we live in light of that truth? Let me give you a few ways to be mindful as we prepare to suffer or as we go through suffering or as we have gone through suffering in our lives. First is this, before suffering, okay? Before suffering, live in gratitude for the moment. Before suffering, live in gratitude for the moment. If you're not suffering right now, don't feel bad about that. Rejoice, be thankful that at this time, in this season of your life, it is peaceful and calm. Let that feed and sustain your faith for the days to come. In Romans chapter 15, verse 13, Paul writes, uh, Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, what does that have to do with preparing for suffering? He says, let that hope not just fill you, but overflow. Let there be more hope in your heart because of Jesus Christ than you can possibly hang on to. Because when suffering comes, I don't know about you, but for me, when suffering comes, that hope starts to to drain out a little bit. I leak. I need to be overflowing. So I'm ready. We should gobble up hope, the hope of Christ, so that we will be ready when suffering comes. You know that an adult grizzly bear, before they go into hibernation, will gain sometimes a thousand pounds before going to sleep at the time of year when there's no food to eat. You and I, we should be like hibernating bears. We should pack on the fat of gratitude to be prepared for the suffering that's gonna come in our lives. Before suffering, live in gratitude for the moment. Then when suffering comes, during suffering, accept the normalcy of the struggle. Okay, if you're in a a, a place of suffering today, in that season of your life, accept the normalcy of the struggle. Suffering is not an anomaly of life. We've talked about this before. It's not like when I'm suffering, something must be wrong because this is not the way supposed, the world's supposed to go. This is not the way my life is supposed to be. Oh yeah? Let's go back and read the scriptures about how we as believers will suffer. Go back just to, to verse one, when Paul said to Timothy, hey, hard times will come. Not they might, not it's a possibility. He says they will come. You will suffer, right? That is the normal aspect of life. If you're in the middle of suffering, all that hope you stored up may not actually make you feel great in the moment. Okay, let's be honest with ourselves for a second. I'd love to tell you that when you're suffering, if you just had enough hope before, now that suffering wouldn't bother you at all and life would be just fine even though there's lots of bad stuff going on. Most of you know that's not the way you feel. When we suffer, we hurt. We need to know that that's normal. We need that hope. We need that hope as that foundation to carry us through, to remind us that when others give us an encouraging word, that that is true. But in the suffering, sometimes we just got to sit there and go, God, I don't like this. I wish this was different, but I understand this is part of life in a broken, fallen world. 
So before suffering, live in gratitude. During suffering, accept the normalcy of the struggle. Then once you've been through suffering, after suffering, that is the time that we look to God's purposes. This is when we look to God's purpose. Again, we should be doing this before the suffering, during the suffering, and after the suffering. But there's a calm that comes after the suffering that allows us to look with more clarity than, we're, than when we're in the midst of the struggle. In Psalm 119, and the psalmist is writing, Psalm 119 is just a beautiful psalm about the goodness and the truth of God's word. And verse 71 comes in the middle of him talking about how the word sustains during difficult times. And he writes, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I could learn your statutes. Right, you hear that? The psalmist says, it was good for me to be afflicted. It was good for me to suffer because it allowed me to know your truth all the more. The psalmist knows the value of looking back and going, okay, God, I don't get this. I don't understand this. I don't like this, but you are God. You are true. You are good. And I trust you. And I will know you better through suffering. Right? Most of us know that. Most of us have been through that. When you've been through suffering and relied on the Lord, that's the, your, your trust, your faith, it becomes so much more than just a knowledge that you have in your head. You have seen it work. You know God's truth, God's word so much better. So before suffering, live in gratitude. During suffering, accept the normalcy. After suffering, look to God's purpose. Let me give you a bonus one here. Okay, wherever you're at in that process, share your suffering. Share your suffering. The Christian life is meant to be lived in community. It's meant to be lived with one another. That doesn't mean if you're suffering, you have to go and tell every single person in the church every detail of what's going on in your life. But you should have a Christian brother or sister who knows what's going on, who prays with you, who encourages you, who challenges you when you need to be challenged. A Christian life lived out of community will be a failed Christian life. I promise you that every single time. So how are you and I preparing today? How are we enduring today? How are we reflecting today for the promised pressures of opposition and, and persecution in our faith? See, persecution will always follow those who are faithful to Jesus Christ. But that's okay. That's okay because Paul's going to go on in verse 13 through 15 and say, yes, that persecution is coming. You know it's going to come. That's the cost of a faithful fire. But 13 through 15, he gives us the strength of a faithful fire. The strength of a faithful fire. Verse 13, Paul continues, evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul talks about the strength of a faithful fire. He says, yes, evil people will come. 
And again, if we remember back to the beginning of, of 2 Timothy chapter 3, he's not just talking about those evil people out there, right? He's talking about evil people within the church, those who come claiming to know Christ, those who come with a form of godliness and yet devoid of the power of God. He says, yes, evil people, they will come. They'll practice their deception. They'll seek to steal your fire. He says, but there's strength in the word of God and in the heritage of your faith. And that strength will uphold you. So that strength is in the, the wisdom of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He says, the strength you have is not some deep secret knowledge. It's not something that only the best and the brightest can figure out, can learn, can know, can understand. He says, no, this is very plain. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. This simple truth that God loves you. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how hard you've tried to push him away, how much you've tried to figure out this life on your own. God loves you. And because he loves you so much, because he loves you so greatly, it breaks his heart to see you run from him and how often you and I have chosen ourselves over him. So much so that knowing that we could never fix what we had broken, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be born in a manger, to live perfectly, to die sacrificially, paying the penalty for your sin and my sin so that he could rise victoriously over death once and for all so that we have nothing to fear in this life so that he could deliver us so that when we stand in judgment before God the Father with Jesus Christ at his side as our advocate, God doesn't look at us and go, were you good enough? Did you do enough? Did you know enough Bible verses? Did you go to church enough times? Did you do this? Did you do that? No, he looks at us and he says, have you trusted my son? If the answer is yes, we know that Christ has clothed us in his righteousness, not the filthy, worthless rags of our best efforts and our righteousness, but the beauty and the purity of his righteousness. Paul says, this is what you gotta know. Paul says, this is truth. This is the strength of a faithful fire. Trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ and you will stand firm. Not that it'll be easy all the time. Not that you won't struggle and suffer. But you'll have the strength of the gospel to stand firm. We have a, a fence on the, the side of our house, right on the, just inside the alley that runs next to our house. And over the, the years, we've taken out a couple of different chunks of that fence for different reasons. It's kind of moved its way back to just in our backyard. The first time I had to take down a part of that fence, I, was, I, I planned a whole day because I knew this, is, this offense, it's, it's, it's in there pretty good. Right? And, and it was starting to fall down, but we, we needed a way to see uh, a, a little more into the corner. So I planned a whole day and got out to the first post and I, I start digging, right? And I'm thinking I'm gonna have to dig down three, four, five feet. There's two posts right together. And on the first one, I get about six inches down and I'm at the bottom of the post. I'm like, holy cow. They must have just, you know, put this one up next to, to the one that's deeper, right? They just kind of 
put these two posts together. Okay, so that, that post, if I've got a, you know, six inches is all I've dug down. And I go to the next one and the fence just kind of starts to fall over. We had talked about, you know, do we kind of fix that fence up at one point? Like, do we just replace the, you know, the sideboards and, and make it look nice? That would not work. Why? Because the fence will just fall over. It doesn't matter what we do to what's above ground. It doesn't matter how nice we make it look. That fence is just going to fall over sooner or later. Why? Because it's not buried deep. It has no strength. It has no roots. It's just sitting there. We could all have lives that look nice on the outside. We can paint that fence, make it look pretty, replace any broken boards that are there. But if our posts aren't dug deep, when the trial comes, we will fall over. The only way we remain strong in the faith is if we have a solid foundation to stand upon, to dig our feet into, a solid foundation that doesn't shift with the winds of cultural acceptance, but holds eternally firm to the objective and unrelenting truth of God's love, God's grace, and God's mercy. See, with an honest study, with any honest study, we see that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true and consistent in absolutely astounding ways. I challenge you, if, if, if you're somebody who's like, yeah, I believe, Jesus, this, this is good stuff, right? But I only trust in science. I only trust in math. I only trust in the things I can measure. Okay, let's, let's look at these two side by side and see what actually works, what's actually consistent, what's actually reasonable and logic in terms of its truth. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that accounts not only for creation, for morality, for beauty, but it's the only thing that honestly accounts for, for evil and for suffering and for the battle between morality and justice and sin and redemption. Our faith, when, when, when examined with any little bit of honesty and intellectual integrity, proves itself true time and 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 time again. And because our faith is true, we don't need to worry about whether it will hold up under scrutiny or whether it will hold up under time. It will. The only question is the matter of whether you and I will stand up under scrutiny and whether you and I will stand up over time. And the answer to that is found in whether we have dug our feet into the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, it says, In addition, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, just as it was with you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people. For not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. What Paul says is not everyone will adhere to sound judgment, to reasonable thinking. But God gives strength to the faithful. 
God gives strength to you and to me if we will stand firm in the strength of the faithful fire. If our strength is found in the way we feel from worship, in the answers that we see and can identify from our prayers, or in how fair God seems to be from our point of view, then our fire will flicker and fade. But if we want to be strong in in logic, in reason, in hope, and in faith, then we cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, when we face fears, doubts, questions, opposition, even persecution, where is our strength drawn? Where do you and I turn for strength? So we've seen the cost and the strength and the faithful fire. But from here, Paul finishes this passage by showing us the source of a faithful fire. The source of a faithful fire. Verse 16 and 17, verses that some of you know very well. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The source of a faithful fire. The strength of faithfulness is found in the truth. And the source of that truth is scripture. It is God's word. Paul says here that all scripture, and when he says all scripture, whether he realizes this at the moment or not, he is including the Old Testament and the New Testament. I realize he is writing the New Testament as we speak. The Holy Spirit is working through him. But because it's the Holy Spirit working through him, he has a better understanding. Maybe he doesn't, but the Holy Spirit does as he calls him to write this. That this is going to apply to Old Testament and New Testament alike. He says that all the scripture is breathed out by God through the Holy Spirit into the human hands of the authors. Because God is perfect, then every word from his mouth, that is all scripture, is perfect too. Now, we could get into deeper conversations here about translations and translation issues. That's fine. You'll have lots of people who want to push back on the Bible and be like, well, it was written by humans. They have no understanding of what was going on. They'll say, well, it was edited by people and put together in 300 AD. No, that is a lie that is not historically accurate in any way, shape, or form. They'll say, well, there's errors. Show me one. Oh, there's contradictions. Here, pull one out. Show it to me. I would love to see it. In translation, there's some things that we're not sure of in the Bible. But you know how much difference that makes to the actual message of Scripture and what those passages say? Big old goose egg. Every word of Scripture is true. It is breathed out by God. And I believe wholeheartedly that the God who is powerful enough to speak his word through human authors is powerful enough to sustain that message over just a couple thousand years. Okay, back to the point. Because God is perfect, then every word from his mouth is perfect too. 
And because every word from his mouth is perfect, then it is useful in teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training for righteousness. We're not going to go into the specifics of what each one of these means in Paul's context because that's not really the point. The point that Paul is making here is that scripture is sufficient and true and useful for every aspect of life. Right? If you don't understand the difference between rebuking and correcting, that's okay. Understand that what Paul is really getting at is that this word is sufficient for everything and every area and every situation that's going to come at you in life. Further, Paul argues that the sufficiency of scripture never ends in the heart and the mind of the believer. Watch why he says this, right? He says it is sufficient in every aspect of life. For what reason? He says, so that it will pour out in the good works of the believer. See, the truth of the gospel is never meant to be an intellectual assent. Is meant to be something we know and understand and put to use in our lives. To love one another, to serve the Lord, to serve his kingdom. Listen, we talked about this a, a few weeks ago as well, but it bears repeating. Our hope and our purpose for salvation is not found in the book I hold in my hands. It's found in the God of the Bible. Our hope, our purpose, our salvation is found in the God of the Bible. Now, how do we know that God? Through his word. He gives us everything we need to know in his word. Right? If we feel that we know something about God or from God or for God that is not found in the, the words of scripture, that is not is not verified in this book, then we cannot hold it to be true. Peter talks about how God has, in, in 2 Peter 1 verse 3, talks about how God in his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and his own goodness. What's the knowledge of God that he's given us? His word. That means everything we need for life and for godliness is found in this book because everything in this book points us back to the God who has loved us and saved us and delivered us. It's because the source of faithfulness, of building and maintaining and growing a blazing hot, bright fire of faith is found in the words of Scripture. This always must lead us to live out scripture. John 8, verse 31 and 32 says, Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Right, sometimes we like to take that and boil it down and just go, Well, if we know Jesus, we're saved. Yes, but we got to talk about a definition of no. If you say, well, yeah, Jesus is God, I'm good. I prayed a prayer one time. Okay, that's good. That's great. But has that changed your heart and your life? Have you surrendered yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ? 
right? What we do does not make us saved. Right? We reject that 100%. We cannot do enough to be saved. Faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. And Jesus says here, he says, you will, if you continue in my word, you will be my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He says the knowledge to know him leads to an action, which is freedom and living in that freedom. So you and I can know everything there is to know and still not be saved. There are atheist scholars who know more about the Bible than you and I probably do. They come to it from a horrible position and they mangle it and mistreat it in ways that are unbelievable. But they probably got more scripture memorized than you and I do. So just to know everything there is to know doesn't mean we truly know God's word. All right, James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We have to understand the context of what James is saying here. He's not saying if you just look after orphans and widows, that's all you have to do. No, but he's talking about a specific situation in which people are focused on themselves and they don't need to do anything because they, they know God. So what they do is irrelevant. They can live however they want to live and act however they want to act, and it's all okay. James is like, no, 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 you've missed the point. If you truly understand who Jesus is, it will change you. So God looks for, for conduct and character that flow from the same heart. See, theoretic faith is useless faith. True faith is grounded in the word of God as its source, as its strength, as its hope. The source of a faithful fire is God's word. It's God's love displayed in God's word lived out through your hands and my hands. So what's the, the source of faith that others in our lives experience flowing out of us? If we talk to our neighbors, if we talk to somebody we have a passing knowledge of, maybe somebody we say hi to once in a while but don't really know, what would they say is the source of our hope, our joy, our lives? Would they see the truth of God? the love of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. If you leave here today and you go out this afternoon and you drive some of the back roads in our area, you're going to find plenty of dilapidated homes and barns that litter the countryside. I've yet to see one of those buildings that's been abandoned for 50, 60, even 10 years that I look at and think, that looks move-in ready. Instead, those buildings look deserted and on the verge of collapse. And in fact, some of them have already started to fall in on themselves. And in the same way, an unattended faith, one that claims to trust Jesus without giving attention to building, stoking, and maintaining that fire of the faith will fade away and will soon be forgotten as well. Instead, you and I are called to work the fire of our faith, 
with a focus and a purpose to keep that flame burning hot and bright. To do this, we have to remember the cost. We remember what will be required of our faithfulness. We have to draw our daily and and moment by moment strength from the truth and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we must never allow God's word to be replaced in our lives as the source of truth, as our guide, as we walk through this life. Church family, may we be a people of endurance, of hope, and of confidence. Enduring our trials with the hope of our resurrection in Jesus Christ by a confidence we find in the truth of God's word. And as we do, let our fire shine ever more brightly in the exhaustion, the depression, and the uncertainty of the world around us. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that we don't have to walk through this world in darkness trying to figure out how we can be good enough and smart enough and successful enough, how we can make everything make sense from our point of view. But Lord, we thank you that you have given us the truth of your word that we might celebrate the hope that we have in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we might be strengthened by your Holy Spirit to see that truth, to understand it, to surrender the idea that we are good enough and smart enough, righteous enough to come before you. And that we get to rest in the truth that everything that needs to be done has been done by your son, Jesus Christ. So that we can simply love you and serve you. And know that you are all that we need. Would we love you? We thank you so much. We praise your great and awesome name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.